how in the world do you preach a sermon called the gospel of the kingdom? And the answer is, is you don't. The good news is, is that it's what the entirety of the rest of the book of Matthew is about. And so I don't feel like we have to exhaustively cover the subject <laughs> this morning, seeing how that is what Christ does for the entirety of the rest of the book. This morning, continuing once again in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, and the gospel of the kingdom. Have you ever found yourself with a major endeavor that is before you, whether it be a, a new job or something as heavy and weighty as a new marriage or, or the, the birth of a new child? And while you technically know that the beginning has come, there's a period of time at the very start where it really kind of feels like you're just beginning to begin, if that makes sense, before you're really into the meat of it. Now, with the timeline of Christ's ministry thus far, I think that's where he's at. He is beginning to begin. We have seen his baptism, the fulfillment of John's ministry, the Messiah being revealed to Israel, followed by the fasting and the temptation by Satan in the wilderness where Christ was tempted in every way as we are and yet was victoriously without sin, only to return home to Nazareth to fulfill what was written by the prophet Isaiah and to find that a prophet has no honor in his own town. To be run out to Galilee that the word of God might be further fulfilled where he calls his disciples to him. And having begun to begun, now Christ begins his ministry in earnest. In the ark that we will see carries him all the way to the propitiation of Calvary's cross. This morning in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 through 25, it says that he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people so that his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Christ has been beginning to begin, but now he begins in earnest. He begins teaching first in the synagogues and to all of the people that will listen. He begins healing all of these various diseases and it is drawing a crowd as you would imagine that it would for what is listed here is Christ healing the worst of the worst. We were talking in the back earlier this morning before we got started about sometimes feeling like you're a person out of time. And I said, Brandon, I tell you, I think what I would miss the most would be the air conditioning reality is, is there's a lot we would find ourselves missing. Penicillin? <laughs> Anyone? I find it interesting that the diseases that are listed here are diseases that 2,000 years later modern medicine still has not found a way to address. Man, if you could cure epilepsy today, your stock price would go through the roof. 
They're doing everything they can, stem cells and everything else, trying to figure out how to repair damaged nerves so that perhaps a paralytic may have some tingle in his extremities again, much less actually be able to get up and walk. The level of these miracles is mind-numbingly huge. We think about the impossibility of a, of a lame man that is paralyzed perhaps from the waist down or, or maybe even more. We think about the impossibility of even modern science being able to tell him to get up and walk. But the reality is this, is modern medical science is still so far behind understanding what's actually going on that we could not even give you a mechanical prescription for each cell that needs to be fixed in order for him to work again much less the software programming that is required when you're this big to be hardwired into your head to learn how to do it. He healed these people. They were coming to him. And they were coming from everywhere. Man, word gets out on this deal. Can you imagine a physician for which no ailment is too difficult? Can you imagine one that doesn't need a team of doctors in a city at a specialized hospital far away that have to put their heads together and confer to come up with the best plan that they can figure out at the moment to perhaps address what is going on with you, but simply an individual man who you come to and there is no practicing of medicine. There are no barbaric treatments that make you feel worse than the disease you have makes you feel. There's no denial of coverage. There's no waiting for improvement to see if the treatment's going to work or not. He just says, get up and walk. And they get up and walk. He tells the epileptics to stop having a seizure and those oppressed by demons, he says, out. All at no price. Man, they came from everywhere. They came from Syria in the north. They came from the Decapolis, which is a, an area of, of 10 Roman cities just to the east of the Jordan. Kind of think of it like the, the Metroplex in, in Dallas, right? There's 10 major cities there. They came from there. Jews and Greeks. They came from all of Judea. They came from Jerusalem. They flocked to him. And Jesus was able to do this. Not because he was some kind of holy man. Not, not because he was some kind of medical genius. He was able to do this because Jesus is life. And it's not simply that Jesus Christ supplies life. Scripture says that Jesus is life. This is what he is. If you want to know what life is, what you do is you look to Jesus Christ stronger than the grave. Jesus is life. One of the guys that wrote about it the most was the Apostle John. So I want to look at three different things he said. Let's look in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 first, because quite frankly, I mean, if you give me an excuse to read this, I'm going to. And so in John chapter 1, in verse 1, the apostle writes and says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So if there's anything that exists, 
that at some point in time did not previously exist, then Christ made it. Now, we think oftentimes, you know, when we're kids growing up in Sunday school, we learn the creation narrative out of Genesis, and we know what it says, that God spoke. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke and said, let's divide the light and put the greater light in the day, and we'll call it the sun, we'll put the lesser light in the night, we'll call it the moon, and one will rule over the day, and one will rule over the night. And this is the, the omnipotent, sovereign word of the Father coming forth from the throne. But what John tells us, and what we learn from Paul in Colossians that we'll look at in a minute too, is that Jesus was the means by which it was brought forth. I don't understand it completely. It has something to do with him being the physical member of the Trinity. The Father speaks his will, and Christ, who is one with the Father, executes it in perfect harmony because it's his will too. Jesus made all of this. All the atoms, all the protons, the electrons, neutrons, quarks, if you're into that sort of thing, he made all of this. If there is anything in existence that at some point in time hasn't always been in existence, it came directly from the hand of Jesus Christ himself. And then it says this, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It shines in the darkness. It shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Later, in John chapter 11, verse 25, John will record Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Not just that I have life, not just that I can give life, but I am, you go may. I am the resurrection and the life. Later, in his first letters we've been looking at on Sunday night, the Apostle John will say this in chapter 1, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And so here you have Jesus Christ who is life, and you have Jesus Christ who is creator, and everything that has ever been made was made according to the will of the Father through the execution and manifestation of Jesus Christ. And a lot of what he made has some of his life in it. And so it is alive as well. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, it looks like this. It's a ringer, Damon, when you can go John 1 and Colossians 1 in the same sermon. Colossians 1 in verses 15, speaking about Jesus being the executor of the creation, it says that he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Now that right there ought to tell you, based off what John said about the life being manifest so that we could see it, this is the relationship that Christ has with the Father, where the Father sovereignly wills and Christ sovereignly executes. He causes it to be. He manifests it. He allows to be seen, to be real, what would otherwise not be seeable by me and you. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. These are not conceptual they are actual beings 
And they are alive. Because he's alive. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Or if you really want to take it literally in the Greek, all things have their existence. So here's the Father, and he goes, this is my sovereign will. And Christ says, excellent, because you and I are one, and it is my sovereign will too. And I'm going to go execute that which gives us joy to do. And I'm going to create this thing in all things that has ever been created, whether things inanimate or things very animate, whether the dirt under your feet or powers and authorities, whether angels or men, I'm going to create these things. And some of these things like angels and men is going to have some of my life in them. And not only am I going to cause them to be, but then moment to moment in real time, imperfect verb, I'm going to hold their existence in being. Because the third law of thermodynamics is real, folks. It'll all come apart if somebody's not holding it together. So this is what he does. Which brings us to a truly novel approach to medicine. Christ doesn't approach the sick. He doesn't approach the lame. He doesn't approach the paralytic who is suffering the worst physical impairment that someone could suffer. He doesn't approach the, the epileptic that is suffering one of the worst impairments of the nervous system that someone could suffer. He doesn't approach the demon-possessed that is suffering one of the worst spiritual oppressions that someone can suffer in, in a manner of having to reverse engineer the system that's already there. He approaches it as one that goes, I hold all of this in its existence and at my will what is wrong will be made right. What is out of joint will be reset. So get up and walk or stop having a seizure or I rebuke you. Be gone and torment him no more. The power that he displays here at the opening of his ministry is mind-boggling, overwhelming, incalculable amounts of power you know when it comes if I can if you'll indulge me this morning when it comes to the power of Christ in creation the, the, the fancy term that you're going to hear the theologians throw around is creation ex nihilo which means creation out of nothing and so men don't understand what this we, we have no real way to wrap our head around this because we can't do it so, so we always have to start with something. We're creative. We've got the image of God in us, and, and we have some of that creative aspect that God has. And, and so you will see, even though that is not the image of God in us, but, but it's definitely his fingerprint on us, right? I mean, he, he's a creator. We like to be creative. We build things. We paint things. We sculpt things. We, we carve things, right? We write things. We music, whatever the case may be. We love that kind of stuff. We always got to start with something. We can't start with nothing. But he did. He spoke it forth out of nothing. The power that is required to do that is, is insane. Do you understand that if, you've, that if you've got a man that is sitting before you that is a paralytic and cannot walk, that 
in order for him to be able to do that, if you have a physician that is approaching you from a creator standpoint, not from a mechanics standpoint, but from a creator standpoint. And so what I'm going to do is there is stuff in you because of the fallen nature of this world and because of the ordained purpose of the glory of God that is out of place or missing. And what I'm going to do in you, because I'm the one holding you together, I'm the one causing you to be, I'm going to cause nerve tissue that is unfunctional and damaged to go away and to be replaced by tissue that is functional and well-working. Do you understand how much power that takes? And I mean, like, actually, do you have some kind of... Because, because, man, something's coming forth out of nothing. Guys, the Lord, throughout this creation, if you look in Romans chapter 1, He says that you ought to be able to see two things about Him just by looking around. Without anything else, just by looking at the creation, God put two testimonies in the creation according to Romans chapter 1, and that is of his divine nature, that he's not like me and you, and of his power. If you look at nature, when it comes to creation ex nihilo, the Lord has left a little thumbprint, a little calling card of the kind of power that we're talking about here. How much weight... How much mass of nervous tissue do you think has to be changed? How much has to go away and how much has to come into existence in order for a paralytic to be able to walk? Is it a half ounce? An ounce? 2.3? I don't know. It was Einstein that theorized that matter and energy were interchangeable with each other. It was Oppenheimer that proved it. When the first bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, the amount of uranium that was converted from physical existence into energy, in other words, the fuel that made that thing go boom, The part that actually fissioned, not just the rest of it that got it there, but the part where there was something in existence and a moment later that matter no longer existed. That whole bomb was fueled by 700 milligrams of uranium, which is less than one-third the weight of a U.S. dime that you may have in your pocket. You want to talk about the power of Jesus Christ? Man, this stuff isn't tricks. It's not conjuring. It is the creator of the universe. 700 milligrams. And he just calls it into existence. He calls worlds and solar systems and stars and galaxies into existence by the billions. And here he is. Walk. Be free. Your little girl, not going to ever have to worry about almost biting her own tongue off again. Man, you know what we ought to do? We should ask. 
We should ask. And shame on me for when I haven't. And shame on you for when you haven't. You know what Christ says? Look in Matthew chapter 17. And this is not going the direction I was thinking. In Matthew chapter 17. Verse 14. When they came to the crowd, because man, when you're healing people like this, there's going to be a crowd. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. Apparently, some epilepsy is more than just epilepsy. This epilepsy right here didn't only have a physical cause, it had a spiritual cause. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately saying, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have the faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, I'm not going to exegete this this morning because we will when we get to chapter 17. What Jesus is not saying is if you believe hard enough, anything can happen. That is not what he's saying. What he is saying is this. He's saying that he is capable of anything. He is capable of anything. If he's capable of speaking all of this and bringing it into its actual form, then he is capable of anything. And what you need to do is to be in tune with him enough to know his will so that you can ask for it. We need to ask. We need to ask, man. He is good. He is able. He is good and he is able. We got a lot of stuff on our plate that we need to be asking for. And, 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 and I'm not even going to try to give the whole list because I would miss some of it somewhere and then that would be weird. But I'll tell you what. There's three. We need to be asking for Susie. We need to be asking for Jim. We need to be asking for Nikki. And we need to ask understanding. Not only is he able, but he is good. And it doesn't need to be some kind of watered down Lord wealth, provide through natural channels. If he wants to do that, that's great. But you know what? I'm going to ask him to provide supernaturally. And then if he decides to provide naturally, then that's awesome. Awesome. And I'm going to ask until he tells me no. Or until he tells me yes. The amount of power on display here is amazing. 
mind-blowing. Man, they don't care. You understand when the people are coming from the Decapolis, they're a bunch of pagans. Well, about to be former pagans, a lot of them. They're a bunch of pagans coming out of a Hellenistic world. They don't care that this guy says that, that Zeus isn't God. What they want is healed. The people coming out of Jerusalem, for the most part, are so pharisaical, they can't even figure out if they can tie their shoes or not on a Saturday. They don't care that he's going to call them a brood of vipers. They're coming to be healed. And it draws them by the thousands. It is good. Actually, it's commanded a lot. It is good for Christians and the church to engage in the physical well-being of mankind. That's good, man. That is good. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that we see the, the mess of government bureaucracy that we have today is because historically the church has failed to do its job in that respect, man. And the foster care system's a mess. It would be a lot better if there were more orphanages that were well ran by Christians. It just would. It is good for the church to do that. We are commanded to do those things. However, with Christ as our example, I would have you note that such pursuits are always in the service to a higher priority. Jesus wasn't just healing people in order that people might be made whole. He was healing them to bring them to hear something very specific from him. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says, He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The reason that Jesus is doing all of this is glorious and awe-inspiring display of power that it is, and man, it is one. It was all there for a purpose that was bigger than the healing itself. It was there to draw men in order that they might see a physical testimony of a much grander spiritual reality that he was proclaiming to them. It says that he went through their synagogues and through all their towns, teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, gospel is one of those words that almost everybody, if you've been in church for any period of time in your life, knows what it means. And it's in the Greek, it's um, eugelion. It's a mouthful, way too many syllables for a guy from Arkansas. But, and everybody knows what the gospel means, right? The gospel means good news. Almost. The gospel actually means to tell good news. You see, if you just, if, if you just leave it at the concept of good news, and, and it literally, if you break it down in the Greek, it means to tell good, right? To tell good. You know, when we were all taught, when we were kids, what's the gospel? The gospel is good news. Well, the, the problem with that is, is when you say it that way, it's good news in a vacuum. It's good news that's static. It's good news that can be set on a shelf. But that's not what euangelion is. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is good news as it is being proclaimed so that other people can hear it savor it, see it as being joyfully good and embrace. 
embrace it. This is where we get our word for evangelize, guys. And I got to tell you, I think generally speaking, we need to change our thinking about what evangelism means to us. I'm not necessarily talking about changing our methods, though I think when we change our thinking, it will cause you to change your methods. And what I mean by that is this. A lot of people, when you start talking about evangelism, start getting uncomfortable. It's a heavy thing. It is a heavy thing. People say it's an intimidating thing. We've got to change the way we think. When have you ever been intimidated to deliver to someone the best news that they've ever heard? What's intimidating about that? So, well, they may reject me. They may. The reason that's intimidating to you and to me is because we're still thinking with a lot of the old flesh that would have been the part doing the rejecting if we were on the other side of the equation. We have to consider things according to the Spirit. Man, the gospel is not static good news that you can sit on a shelf. The gospel is kinetic good news as it is going forward. And if it is not going forward, it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. It's facts about the gospel. But literally, for it to truly be gospel, it has to be proclaimed. It is not qualifies gospel until it is being proclaimed, whether that be in the spoken word or, or, or the written word or the testimony of your marriage or the testimony of baptism or the testimony of communion. It doesn't matter. It does not become the gospel until it can be seen by somebody. Then it's the gospel. Before that, it was facts about the gospel. Now it's the gospel when it's going out. Jesus says this thing is so valuable that I will expend an insane amount of power healing these people to bring them here so that I can proclaim to them the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. You see, this gospel that Jesus is proclaiming is not the good news of forgiveness. It contains the good news of forgiveness. And it's not the good news of salvation. It contains the good news of salvation. It's not the good news of hope. It's not the good news of adoption. It's not the good news that the Gentiles have become Israel through faith. The children of Abraham. It contains all of those things. But what he is speaking about is much bigger than that. You say, man, how can you say the gospel of the kingdom is not the gospel of salvation? said the gospel of the kingdom contains the gospel of salvation but don't think that the two are equal to each other you know how you know is because when he starts proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom some of the first people that really want to set up and take notice are the demons to which it is no salvation to them at all it's judgment to them this thing is big and it is, it is not even specifically, it's not just mankind it's dealing with. It's big. You know, when you consider the nature of a kingdom, because here is the good news being proclaimed. And the good news that is being proclaimed is the good news of the kingdom. 
Now, when you think about kingdoms, there's, there's, there's really three different ways that you, can, that you can understand a kingdom. You know, if you say, tell me about your kingdom, if, we'll pretend that you're the king, right? I say, tell me about your kingdom. And you might say something like this. Well, you know, it's, um, it's 10,487 square miles, and it runs from this river to, to this coastline from east to west, and, and from this mountain range to, to, to this canyon from north to south, and, and that's my kingdom. And you talk about the territory. Or what you may do if I say, tell me about your kingdom, is you may tell me about your people. Man, the kingdom's made up of, you know, 6,758,243 men, women, boys, and girls, and our percentages of, of this age group is this, and our percentages of that age group is that, and we got 51% female and 49% male, and, and uh, you know, they're 87% gainfully employed, and, man, that's, it's a great kingdom. You may talk about the people. Or what you might do is talk about the king. You see, one of the things that we don't deal with very well in our thinking today is the idea of an absolute monarchy. And the reason we don't is because in the modern world, they are just basically non-existent. Even the true monarchies that we have are a swarm of political intrigue and, and usurpers to the throne and, and, and jockeying and positioning. And, and, and you, you really don't have, and I guess to some degree among men, you have never had a truly sovereign king that has no influence from outside of himself about the manner of his reigning over his kingdom. But such is the case with Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven is, is a kingdom. And it is defined by its king. It's not the republic of Jesus Christ. It's not the commonwealth of heaven. It's the kingdom. As a matter of fact, if you look at this word in the Greek, because you say, well, okay, well, what's he focusing on? When, when, he's, when he's proclaiming to these people, hey, man, this is, this is the good news of the kingdom of being proclaimed to you. What's he talking about? Is he talking about the borders and where it'll be and what the new Jerusalem's going to look like and where you're going to stay and in which room and all that kind of stuff? Is he talking about the people that are going to be there? Is he talking about the subjects of the kingdom? Or is he talking about the king? And the answer is he's talking about the king. The word in the Greek, it, 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 has, it has in mind the focus of the dominion of the king. So much to the point that the Dictionary of Biblical Languages with Semitic Domains, that's a mouthful, says that you should consider translating it as the word reign. Because that way you don't confuse the other aspects of the kingdom with what is actually being spoken of here. As a matter of fact, we translate it something like that in Revelation chapter 17, verse 18, when it says, The woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion. Same word we translate as kingdom here that has dominion over the kings of the earth. And so when Jesus is going about healing all these people and drawing them in specifically so that he can say something even more important to them, what he is saying is this, I've got good news for you and it's the good news of the kingdom. Specifically, the good news of the kingdom is not first and foremost that if you repent, I'll be gracious. It's not first and foremost that I will die to save you. 
It is not first and foremost that I will rise to propitiate you. First and foremost, before and beyond anything else, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom is that the king reigns. That's it. That's the good news of the kingdom. Jesus Christ reigns. And if you don't believe it, here's a whole tassel full of paralytics, former paralytics, former demon-possessed individuals, and, and former epileptics that can all show you beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ reigns. Guys, let me tell you something. For that to be good news... See, and that's why you'll get people nervous when you start saying stuff like that. Look, the gospel of the kingdom... Man, first and foremost, it's not heaven over hell. It's not that Jesus is going to forgive you. It's all of those things. Please don't hear me wrong. It's just bigger than that. As a matter of fact, those things, as magnificent as they are, are the building blocks out of which the kingdom is being constructed. It's bigger than all of it. The reason people get nervous, I think, when you start talking like that. Well, first of all, they're worried you're going to be a heretic and go off on some weird tangent that's not Christ-glorifying, you know? And I can certainly understand that concern. But once they figure out that that's off the table, and like, hey, what we're talking about here is glorifying the king because the king is the one who by the power of his own life is causing the kingdom to exist. This is where we started this morning. That Jesus Christ, if it exists... And it hasn't always existed, but it does now. Then it came from Christ and out of his own power and his own life, he brought it into existence and he's holding it into existence. Friends, you want to understand the kingdom? The kingdom is the manifest will of the king who is causing it. He reigns in a way that human kings will never reign. He's completely autonomous. He sits in heaven. The Lord does all that pleases him, scripture says. As crazy as it is that that bomb that went off in Japan was fueled by less than a third of a dime's weight of uranium, he speaks billions of galaxies into existence and has no less power the moment after than he did the moment before. He does what he pleases. And the reason that makes men nervous is because I think deep down in the bottom of their hearts they're not completely convinced he's good. And I am. See, I don't have to have all the strings attached. I don't need the, the reassurance that, oh no, it is the gospel of salvation. Oh no, it is the gospel of propitiation. Oh no, it is the gospel of heaven. Because all of that is true and that's fine and that's great. But you don't have to have all of that if you just know that Jesus is good. If you just know that it's good. Now look, don't get me wrong. And you guys know me. I'm not arguing for, for scriptural ignorance here. Because what you ought to do is, when you figure out Jesus is good, this is not one of those things where we go, oh, let God work it out. No, when you figure out Jesus is good, and this is the good news that's being proclaimed to you, then what you want to do is go learn as much about the good as you possibly can. But the driving force here is not to understand the minutia of the doctrine. The driving force is to understand that Jesus Christ is good and the King reigns. And that's the gospel. The gospel, the good news of the kingdom is that the king reigns. And this king is good. 
so good that he condescended to come as a man to live amongst the filth of humankind and all of their depravity to die he who is life to die in order to pay for a debt that he did not owe who would rise again and defeat the grave by the power of his own might make propitiation for your sins and for mine and to sit at the right hand of the Father until the day when his enemies are made his footstool. And so this gospel of the kingdom, he goes forth proclaiming. And he does it from the beginning all the way to the end of his earthly ministry and it will continue being proclaimed by his people all the way up until the day of the Lord and the end of days. You know, look with me if you will real quick. We're going to close in Matthew chapter 4, or 24, sorry. You know, it's, it's, it's a funny day in the church world for a lot of different reasons. One of the, the trends that the people that keep track of this stuff are starting to notice, one of the trends that that the statisticians are starting to notice is that you know we're still kind of on that um, statistical slide that we've been seeing for about the last 30 40 years where more and more young adults are quote unquote leaving the church um, that's a misnomer they were never the church that's why they're leaving um, Christ's people are his people his body is his body uh, we put the wrong label on them at some point in time, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that and a lot of stuff that needs to be done to fix it, but it's a sermon for a different day. We're still seeing that slide, but within that slide, where we are seeing a little bit of an uptick is that for younger people that are getting involved in church, and I think that they're, you know, who knows? I, I don't know if they're, they're really Christians or if they're just being involved in quote-unquote church. That's between them and God, but statistically, when, when you see this little uptick, we are seeing a larger and larger um, subset of that demographic that are becoming involved in um, much higher forms of classical worship and liturgy. And so you really are seeing kind of a, an upswing in kind of the opposite of us, right? You know, a pastor or a priest in a robe, very formalized service, um, you know, a lot of very particular, you know, the call and response kind of stuff, that, that sort of thing. You know, today's scripture reading and all the congregations going to read together. And hey, look, that, man, I ain't, if that's your thing, that's great, man. If you're using it to worship and glorify God, then, then that's awesome and I'm all for it. But they say that the reason that we're seeing this, this swing is when you ask these, these young people about this is because what we have done today with a lot of this is so effectively isolate individuals away from any kind of sense of community and it's changing so fast that they don't feel like they have any connection to a community around them or to the past. And I think that, that that's probably a legitimate problem. 
and then and then so what happens in in most church situations is is okay you realize this is a problem we read the latest report that comes out oh these kids need more community they need more tying to the past right and because they need that kind of stability and if we're going to get them this is how we're going to get them so let's have a staff meeting and we'll put all heads together and let's figure out how to put it on the bulletin where they've got community and let's get them an arm bracelet that'll make them feel like they've got community and i'll preach a five-part sermon series on community Guys, you want continuity of community in the gospel of the kingdom that is, here's the good news, the king reigns? The continuity is the gospel, and I mean the proclaiming of the gospel of the kingdom. At the very beginning, when Jesus is just getting started, what does he do? He says, here's what I'm doing. I'm going to heal these people, I'm going to draw a crowd, and I'm going to use that opportunity to proclaim the good news that the king reigns. Fast forward three years later to the very end of his ministry in Matthew chapter 24. He's about to go to the cross. And it says in verse 3, as he sat down on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus said to them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. And so these guys come up and say, okay, Lord, you know, what, what's, how does this deal end? We started off seeing all these people healed and all these miracles and you've been proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom all along and things are getting dicier and dicier and dicier and dicier and now you're telling us that the temple's going to be torn down you're going to build it again in three days when how does this all where do you put a ribbon on it then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be an increase, the love of many will grow cold. That is the 70th week of Daniel. What most people call the Great Tribulation. So Jesus says we're going to go all the way through redemptive history, all the way up into the midst of the Great Tribulation. And then he says this. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, what do these that are enduring, what do they look like? Or tell me, because I want to be able to endure. So tell me what the ones who are enduring look like. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. When you see lawlessness increase, the love of many grow cold, you being handed over to be tortured and put to death, and the rise of the Antichrist, know then that the one who endures to the end will be saved. And how will we be enduring? You will be enduring in the midst of that chaos and disorder when it looks like the opposite of the king reigning, when it looks like that the Antichrist and darkness will reign, what my people will still be doing then, as I've been doing from the very beginning of my ministry, is standing up and going, hey folks, I got some good news for you. The king reigns. Well, what about that blasphemy? What about him? The king reigns. 
And he's good. And you can trust him even unto death. You want to talk about continuity? The people of God have been doing that now for 2,000 years. You want continuity? You want community? Go to Walmart and tell somebody, hey, buddy, let me tell you some good news. The king reigns. You want to know more? Because there's some very things about his reign that are pertinent to you. So that's simple. You don't need to be intimidated. You don't need to be intimidated in sharing the good news. You know why? The king reigns. See? They might reject me. Yeah, they might. It's okay. King reigns. They might reject me. He won't. He reigns. They might laugh at me. He won't. He reigns. And just like he told his prophets before, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And they can deal with him at the appointed time. It's really none of my business. My business is this. Good news. King reigns. This is the gospel of the kingdom. A gospel that is backed up by power that we can't even imagine. That just a glimpse of was enough to draw crowds from everyone that heard. One day, one day that rain will be right before our eyes. Today, we know it through the gift of faith. He said, man, I don't know if I've got that kind of faith or not. You need to ask the one that has the power to make paralytics walk. Ask the one that has the power to kick out a demon that would eat you like a wood chipper if the Lord would let him. Ask him because he reigns. The good news of the kingdom is the kingdom. The king reigns. We need to ask him, folks. He is faithful and he is just. And as we, uh, as we turn ourselves to, to praise, um, now would be an excellent opportunity uh, for you to be able to do that. Pray for the lost. Pray for our own.